0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter three is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, this is kind of a springboard, and, and preachers don't normally like to admit they're just using a springboard text, but based on what we'll be looking at over the course of, of this series on doctrine and, and uh, why Baptist is kind of what I'm calling it, um, then in, there's a lot that will be we'll kind of be jumping around more than I typically do in taking a passage and preaching an expositional message. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 10, and this is a, a well-known passage on the importance of the Word of God, and it says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, that's Timothy, Paul talking to Timothy, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium. At Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, And here's the passage, the three verses that really are kind of a highlight of the verses in God's word that talk about the scripture. Verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Love that passage. I love those verses. And really gives us the idea that, that the scripture is, is authoritative in that it came from God and that it's sufficient and that it's all we need for salvation and for the Christian life. And those thoughts really are the foundation uh, that helps us to be Baptists. To be Bible believers, let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we love you and uh, we certainly don't take for granted that you meet with us. I pray that you would do so tonight and that we'd use this message to be an encouragement and a blessing to those here. I pray that you challenge us uh, to take a, a serious uh, view of, your word, of your, this book, your, your word, Lord. We, we don't want to take lightly that you have communicated with us and you've preserved it for us, Lord. So we thank you for uh, loving us enough to communicate with us. We pray that you'd help us uh, then to uh, return that in our communication with you tonight in, in whatever way that you work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So as I mentioned, tonight we're, lo- we're continuing our look on Wednesday nights at, at Baptist doctrines. And I've gone back and forth about what to call it. The first couple of weeks I've, I've mostly said doctrine matters and That's kind of been what I was leaning to, but then I think I've landed on on why Baptist with a question mark, because I do think that's important uh, for us to know why we're Baptist, and I get that idea from this man, Jim Alter, who wrote a book by the same title uh, on Baptist doctrine. It could have just as easily been called Baptist Distinctives, Baptist Doctrine. Uh, Baptist Doctrine is Bible Doctrine. These are all thoughts that went through my head when I was trying to figure out what to call it, but... Uh, I think that why Baptist does sum up what I'm trying to do on Wednesday nights. It it sums up what I'm trying to reinforce in our minds as as members, most of us members, of a Baptist church. We should know why we're Baptist. You know, there's a lot of options out there, aren't there? I mean, how many churches, if you think in your mind, don't think too long, because you could probably count for a while, but how many churches did you pass on your way to church here tonight? I mean, probably a lot. I mean, we live in a country, in a part of the country, and there are more churches in other parts of the country, but there are plenty of churches in this this area that we live in. I'm not saying they're all Baptists, but there are plenty of churches. So what keeps us from going to a church with a different label? What makes a Baptist distinct from all the others? And this matters for many reasons, but it, it matters especially because truth is under attack. And and we live in a culture in which is attacking truth and undermining truth. I mean, just the passage we're in right here in 2 Timothy 3, um, this is this same case that Timothy was dealing with. Look at verse one, chapter three, verse one. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters, proud blasphemers, that has to do with truth, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And then he talks about the truth, the things that they're teaching. Look at verse 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. Look at this. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he deals with two men that were, that were speaking lies or deception. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. And so that's the context of 2 Timothy 3. So before Paul says, you've known my doctrine, my manner of life, You need to go back to the scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. He's talking to Timothy who is in a culture much like ours. It's the last days and this is the kind of stuff that people are doing. And and they're going this direction and they're against the truth. That's the culture we live in. Truth is under attack and it's not just under attack. I mean, it's under attack by the non-religious for sure. It's also under attack by the religious there are so many that are downplaying the importance of doctrine for the sake of unity. And they're saying, you know, doctrine doesn't matter. Let's just tear down the walls and let's have unity and let's take down the doctrinal purity. But purity of doctrine always comes before unity. And it must, in, in, at Eastside Baptist Church, we must always seek for doctrinal purity before anything else. Another reason doctrine matters is because it matters to God. You know, last week we read dozens of verses from Paul and his epistles, mostly to Timothy and Titus, about the importance of teaching truth, the importance of sound doctrinal teaching, and that should be paramount to Eastside Baptist Church. The teaching of truth, the teaching of doctrine, the teaching of sound doctrine, that should be our, honestly, that our biggest task as a New Testament church is to disseminate or propagate truth. And whether or not we do it inside these walls, or we're doing it outside these walls to the lost, that's what we're doing. We're propagating truth. We're disseminating truth. We are giving truth out. We are publishing truth. If we're going to stand for right doctrine in an age of constant attack, if we're going to preserve doctrine for the next generation, if we're going to stand before God and please him as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, as we read last week in 2 Timothy, then we need to major on doctrine. The first two messages of this series were kind of just laying the groundwork of why we need it, and and I came to this phrase that kind of sums it up in that there is absolute truth, it all matters, you can know it, and we're responsible to represent it to this generation. There is absolute truth, it all matters, we can know it, and our responsibility is to represent it to this generation. So, where do we start? What's the first study? Well, if our primary task is to publish truth, then we need to focus on the source of that truth. And so it makes sense to me then that we start with God's word, that we start to look at, at why we believe that God's word is authoritative, why we believe it's all sufficient, why we believe that it's inspired, that it's inerrant, that it's preserved. All of those things are things that we as Baptists have traditionally believed. And before we get, we're, and I, we're not even going to get into those kind of details tonight. Tonight's more of a big picture. But Baptists have historically held to a certain number of, of beliefs, doctrines, primary doctrines that have caused us, helped us to be distinct. Um, someone uh, came up with an acronym, and it does a great job of describing what our Baptist distinctives are. And they use the word Baptists to do it. Maybe you've heard this before Baptists. Um, it starts with B, biblical authority. That the Bible is our one sole authority for faith and practice. Second Timothy 3 really covers that. Um, the autonomy of the local church, which is autonomy means self-governing. And the reason that was important as, an, as a distinction is that there are lots of religions out there that are denominations. And a denomination or a board or one person kind of oversees all the churches. But that's not the New Testament pattern for a local church. I mean, Acts 13 talks about how the church was self-governing. It, was, it had its own authority in itself. It's the autonomy of the local church. So you've got ba- the, the Bible or biblical authority. You've got the autonomy of the local church. You've got third Baptist with a P, and it's not Baptist with a B, which a lot of us think maybe it's B-A-B-T-I-S-T, but it's not. It's with a P, Baptist, that's the priesthood of the believers, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, and holy nation, a peculiar generation, or peculiar people. And you say, well, we're, are, we're much more better at being peculiar than we are anything else. I think that may be true for Baptists. That is a distinction. Baptist Bible, biblical authority, the autonomy of a local church, the priesthood of the believers. There are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That, that is a distinctive for us individual soul liberty Baptists individual soul liberty meaning that if you look at Romans chapter 14 it says let every man uh, be fully persuaded in his own mind in other words nobody feeds you what you're supposed to believe you should be studying it and believing it for yourself I, don't, I mean, you should, like the Bereans, should go to the word of God and search the scriptures daily. We have soul liberty in that. Let us be fully persuaded in our own mind. In that same passage, Romans 14, it says that, that every man will stand before God. We'll all stand and give account for ourselves before God. Individual soul liberty so that's Baptist, and then we've got two offices, pastors and deacons, and that is Baptist. Then you also have Save, ba- or Save Baptized Church Membership and Separation of Church and State. There's an acronym, that, and I think I spelled it, I went out of order, but that B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S. And as we go through that, uh, we, may, we may look at those and spend a message or at least cover some of that, and to some extent, Um, but, but I do think that as we start, we should start with the Bible, biblical authority. It's the foundation upon which everything else is built. Our foundation of God or our understanding of God's word is established based on our view of God's word. If we can trust it, if it's authoritative, if it's sufficient, that will shape every how we view everything else. It's our sole authority. And the reformers used the term sola scriptura, which is a Latin term, which means only scripture or by scripture alone. And the idea is that all truth necessary to our salvation and our sanctification as a Christian is found in God's word. And we read that here in 2 Timothy 3. Look again at verse 15, talking about the scriptures, Paul wrote, from a child that was known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto, what's that next word? salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be, what's the word? Perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So in that passage just right there, uh, it shows us that for salvation, the Bible is all we need. And for you to become all you're supposed to be for God as a perfect, not perfect as in sinless but perfect as in complete, the word of God has it all. We are, and we're not reformers, we're not Protestants, we're Baptists, by the way, we're not not Protestant, we didn't come out of the Catholic Church, Um, but we are, like the reformers, we are sola scriptura, only scripture, uh, by scripture alone. And they were doing that, They, they, they used that term, that Latin term, uh, because it was, in, it was in response to uh, the the added man made traditions in the Catholic Church in the fifteen and sixteen hundreds, and there there was all these man made religions or uh, traditions being heaped upon them. And if you were to search the Scripture, you wouldn't find those things in the Scripture. And not only that, the way that the religious environment was at that time is that an individual didn't really have much of an opportunity to scrip- search the Scripture for themselves anyway. Everything they learned and heard was being given to them from from the church, from this big organization that tells you what to believe and tells you what you should do, and they knew that that didn't seem right. The Bible is our ultimate authority when it comes to the Christian faith. Before we get to that focus, though, on God's word, I I want to start by addressing something. We come into this study with, with some presuppositions or assumptions, and there, and those two presuppositions are these. Number one, there is a God. Okay? He's a triune God, meaning he's part of the Trinity. He's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he is both sovereign and personal. So we, we come with a presupposition presuppo- tonight that there is a God. We assume that's true. And of course, we had plenty of reason to believe that from God's word, but that is a presupposition, just tr- full transparency, full disclosure. We come assuming there is a God. Okay. That's, that is not part of the question tonight. The second assumption or presupposition is that he reveals himself to us or speak to, speaks to us. Some people might say that pre- that presuppositions aren't trustworthy and you know, that if you have a presupposition, then, then then what you believe is less than what I believe. But listen, every worldview begins with some presuppositions. Every worldview has some assumptions about something. We live in an age that relies heavily on science and logic and evidence to formulate their beliefs. And if you talk very much at all with people uh, that don't believe like you they're looking for evidence that's what they're looking for which is by the way a reason that we ought to be able to reasonably explain our faith as much as we can there's a movement toward apologetics and I think that's not apologizing that's a reasonable approach to doctrine and truth and I think it's something we all ought to be able to do we ought to reason uh, our, for ourselves our faith and be able as much as we can to explain it but, there, but out there, the worldview for most people is an empirical worldview, which is, if it's empirical, it means that they require proof for what they believe. That they, they think you have to have proof, you've got to have science, you have to have evidence. An empiricist claims that our world is a closed box, and everything that we believe, that we can believe, uh, has to be in the box, it means you have to. If you, if you want to believe something, you have to be able to touch it, you have to be able to see it, you have to be able to smell it and, and feel it, and it has to come from inside the box. It claims that our senses are all that is needed for what we believe. And there are other worldviews out there, and that's not the study we're looking at, um, but let's just suffice it to say that even empirical thinkers and rational thinkers, they begin with some presuppositions they have some things that they're assuming to be true they say they exercise no faith when it comes to what they believe and but but every belief system requires some sense of faith on some level i mean for example in instance if you think it requires no faith for someone to believe in evolution i mean even though no one was there to observe it and even though all of the all of the evidence is inconsistent at best Then we don't understand faith because there's a lot of faith that is required to believe in evolution. And they may, and they may not admit it, but they have to exercise faith to come to their worldview. There are some presuppositions. But for a a biblical Christian, here's why I believe that our, our position is even better is for a biblical Christian, we could, or maybe we just call it Baptist, our presupposition starts with God. And so you think about that. One commentator said this, and I love the way they said it. God is the great originator and initiator. False systems of theology and philosophy begin with man and seek to work up to God. We must, in our thinking, begin with God and work down to man. See, contrary to popular belief, the universe does not start with or revolve around mankind. And yet most worldviews start with man at the center and they work out from there. But listen, I feel very safe in our worldview if we start with God and we work down to man from there. Don't you? I mean, I would much rather start with the presupposition that there is a higher being, a divine being org- who, who created this earth and, and this universe in an organized way. I would much rather start there than start with my limited knowledge as a man and go out from there. So our presupposition is there is a God. Francis Schaeffer, who is a pastor and a great apologist, he said this, our main presupposition is that God is and he is not silent. God is and he is not silent. And that is there is a God that exists and he speaks or reveals himself to his creation. So Elijah in his showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings, I love what he said, and call ye on the name of your gods, now I will call the name of the Lord. And he said, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. You know, if there's a God that never speaks and never reveals himself, then we could, we could very easily begin to question if that God exists. Elijah said, the God that, that speaks by fire, let him be God. Psalm 115 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Habakkuk said in chapter 2, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image and a teacher of lies? What profit, basically, that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? Idols they can't speak. See, woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it's laid over with silver and gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Those dumb idols that don't speak, you can pretty much guarantee a God that doesn't reveal himself, a God that does not communicate is no God at all. God is a God that speaks. He reveals himself. Now, when we say the Word of God, um, we don't just mean the Bible. I mean, this is the Word of God, but this is the Word of God written. And I was talking about with this with Brother Robinson just the other day on Sunday. This is the Word of God written. God's Word is first spoken. That makes sense to us. The Word of God would also include... Uh, not just his word and not just the written word, but the power by which, according to what he, Ephesians 1 says, that he brings about the counsel of his own will. Uh, that's God, considered God's word. It's the way that he works to bring about what he wants to come about. It, that would include then also creation. Creation. And that God spoke, and the worlds were formed, He spoke. He's not a silent God. Uh, his word reveals His nature, and his word reveals His power. His word is a genuine reflection of who God is. He's not just a God um, sleeping in heaven who has no thought or concept to reveal himself to mankind. He is a speaking God. And that is our presupposition, He is, and he is not silent. We could even say that God's word or his speech is one of his attributes. That he's a speaking God. I mean, think about just like the fact that he is a holy God and the fact that he's an omnipotent God. He is a speaking God. He doesn't just sit in silence. Uh, It's not like he's not like the dumb idols that don't speak that we already referenced in Habakkuk. Now listen, this doesn't mean the Bible is necessary to God's existence. I mean... Uh, think about it. There were centuries in which, if you were to go looking for God's written word on planet Earth, you would not have found it. But it doesn't mean that God didn't exist, so the Bible is not necessary to God's existence, but communication is necessary to God's existence. The fact that He speaks, that reveals that He exists. He doesn't operate in private. Uh, he fell, I mean and you think about it, and whether or not He speaks to us for eternity, since eternity passed. And if you, can, if you can wrap your mind around that, you win the prize today. But since eternity passed, God has spoken with the Trinity. Uh, they have, I mean, look at Genesis 126. It says, let us make man. That was as creation was happening. So God is a communicating God. He has always communicated. He has always communicated with the Trinity. Within the Trinity, God the Father, the Son And the Holy Spirit in John chapter 1, the word was with God, Um, that fellowship between the Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, that the phraseology there in John 1 literally means they were face to face. They were fellowshipping, they were communicating. God is a speaking God. He communicates. It's one of his attributes. But what's great is he doesn't limit his communication with himself, with the Trinity, no, he actually speaks to people like us. He communicates with his creation. I mean, from the very beginning, think about it. This is God, the God of heaven, um, who is in the, he's existed forever and he exists solely within himself. He doesn't need anybody else to be exist, to exist. He is self-existent. And yet when he created, uh, he actually communicated with Adam. He didn't just send Adam to earth and just kind of let him do his thing. No, he communicated. He is a communicating God. It's a gift that God would communicate with us. And that's what we're dealing with tonight is that one of the key forms that God reveals himself and communicates uh, with his creation is through the scripture. The Bible is God's revealed expression of himself. It is his special revelation commit, committed to the written word. This is this, The fact that we hold this in our hands is an is, is a, a evidence of the attribute that we have a speaking God. He's a communicating God. And that presupposition gives us the confidence then that his word is our ultimate authority. I mean, if this is the evidence that God exists and he is the ultimate God has all the great greatest attributes you can think of. If this is his way to reveal himself to us, then this is all the authority we need for salvation and the Christian life. As we've already read in 2 Timothy 3. But there's plenty of evidence for that. We could look and we're going to look at some other verses throughout the scripture even Tonight, not just set, focus on 2 Timothy 3, I want to I turn, it, there's a case to be made for the authority of scripture, even in the Old Testament, the authority of God's written word. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to turn a few places, and, be, and because I know on Wednesday nights, it's a little, maybe a little warm in here, and, and you've been working all week, and maybe you haven't eaten, and you're tired, and the eyelids get a little droopy, right? Deuteronomy chapter 5, so let's turn and look at a few verses. Deuteronomy 5, so we're, again, we're talking about how in the Old Testament there's a case to be made that God's word um, is the expression of himself and it carries his authority. Look at Deuteronomy 5, 22. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly. This is Moses talking. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount, out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick darkness, with a great voice, and he added no more, and look what it says, and he What? He wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me. Guess who wrote the Ten Commandments? It wasn't Moses with a chisel. It says he wrote them. God wrote them. And I, I imagine his, his handwriting was a lot better than mine. Okay, If you can imagine what it looks like. It says, he wrote them. So this was God's revealed expression of himself. The tables, those tablets, were God communicating to mankind. When God was entering into that covenant relationship with Israel, he gave the people his word. When you enter into a covenant, into a contract, into a promise, you give somebody your word. And he was giving them his word in the Ten Commandments. So I, I mean, think about, where did those Ten Commandments end up? Well, the first set actually ended up um, that, that they broke them. Moses broke them and ground them up. and uh, Moses broke them, actually, uh, when he came down from the mount, and they were serving the golden calf. So that was the first one. But the, when he made them again, where did they end up? They ended up in the ark of the what? The covenant. It's God's his revealed word. His written word in this Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of the covenant between God and his people and that Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred place on earth. It wasn't just Moses writing things down. God was saying, my word, this is my word, literally my law right here and I'm gonna put it in the most sacred place. I'm gonna put it in the Ark of the Covenant. These these words written with my, I don't know how he did it because God is a spirit but I think about him writing it with his own finger. You know, he doesn't have a body, we know that, but that's the the idea here that they weren't just man-written ideas. This was God's expression of himself. This is his words. Look at look let's look over at Matthew 5:17. So there's a case to be made that God wrote or gave his written word to us. It's an expression of who he is and his authority. In Deuteronomy 5, he literally wrote the 10 commandments, but look over in Matthew 5 Matthew 5, verse 17. The New Testament also recognizes the authority of those Old Testament writings. Jesus, Jesus himself treated the Old Testament scripture as absolute authority. You know, when Jesus Christ came to earth, he didn't come saying, Now listen, you guys can put the tablets away. Uh, actually, I should say that in church sometimes. Put the tablets away. Um, Different kind of tablets. You can put the tablets, you can put the law away because I'm Jesus and I'm coming now. I've done away. No, he didn't come saying that. No, he came saying, I've actually come to fulfill the law. Look at Matthew 5, 17. It says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus looked at the law and the prophets as God's authority. He didn't come saying, now the law, that was nice for a time. No, he's saying, listen, uh, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the prophets. I came to prove that they were valid. So even Jesus Christ's own testimony is that the Old Testament scriptures were valid. Not only that, he, t- he treated the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. In John 10, 35, we won't turn there. You know what? Jesus Christ said this about the scripture. He said, scripture cannot be broken. The idea is that the Old Testament law cannot be made null and void. How many times did Jesus come quoting the scripture? How many times did he come saying, it is written over and over and over again? And I think about Matthew 4, when, when Satan came and tempted Jesus Christ And I was just, I just read it uh, today and how in Matthew four, four different times, Satan would come with a temptation. And guess what Jesus Christ, what would he use to combat Satan? What did he do? Yep. Yeah. He said, as it is written four times. So there's Jesus Christ. So you want to know how much authority the old Testament scripture has in the mind of God, the son, he uses it to combat temptation from Satan. He quoted the Old Testament scriptures to the devil, and the devil had to flee. Amen? It's a blessing to know the same things that Jesus Christ had at his disposal to fight against the temptations that came into his life are available to us too. he He didn't go off and leave us by ourselves. He said, no, it is written over and over. Not only that, Jesus lived his life according to scripture. Luke twenty four forty four, and you can write these down if you want. It says, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. Listen, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. That's Luke 24, 44. And what Jesus Christ is saying, listen, I have come to fulfill all that was written by the prophets, all that was written by Moses, all that was written in the book of the Psalms. He said, all of that that was written about me, it was all true. And I've come to make sure that I fulfill all of it. So in case you ever wonder, well, is the Old Testament, is it even necessary? Well, Jesus Christ referenced it a lot. He came to fulfill the law. He lets us know that God's word is the ultimate authority. Jesus is God's son, the second person of the Trinity. And yet he he submits himself to God's written word. He came to say he said I have come to fulfill that word. You know how important God's word is. The the law, the prophets, the psalms, it's so important that I have come to live my life to fulfill it. That's how much it matters. But not only that, I'm so we see Jesus Christ pointing back to the Old Testament scripture, but the rest of the New Testament also recognizes its own authority on par with the Old Testament. No, the New Testament doesn't come and say, now the Old Testament, that was really good. We're trying to do our best here. No, it comes in saying, no, listen, the New Testament here, the Old Testament here, it's all equal, it's all God's word. Think about Matthew 28 and let's turn there. Matthew 28, this is the uh, Great Commission. We all know this passage and are familiar with it, but look what Jesus Christ says about this. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus Christ didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the law. But then he says, but what I want you to do now is I want you to take the things that I have taught you. My commandments, the things that I've given you. And now that becomes the core teaching of what you as a local New Testament church go out now and teach to everybody else. He, is saying, he, he was basically saying that you go declare and propagate the truth that I have given you. That is the key to making disciples. We saw last week how if you don't continue in his word, John 8, then you're not his disciple. But those that continue in his word are his disciples indeed. No, we, Jesus, Christ, did, Jesus Christ didn't come and say the Old Testament's all we need. No, he came with a New Testament and said, now my words, that's what you take. And you build disciples with my words. We could go to John 14 through 16. We're not going to with those are the, the the chapters that talk about the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit has come to comfort us, but also to guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is our companion with the New Testament. You can look into the rest of the New Testament. Turn over to 2 Peter 3. I know I'm going quick. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, we are seeing how the New Testament claims to be on the same level of authority as the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 3. This is, these are verses I, I read on Sunday night about reminding ourselves look at chapter 3 verse 1 2 peter 3 1 this second epistle beloved i now write unto you in both which i stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of the lord and savior so that's interesting what peter is saying is that yes you have the prophets you have the old testament scripture but now you also have the teaching of the apostles myself included and what he's saying is that that they're all on the same level he's not he's not saying that the old testament is superior or that the old testament is better he, he's not even saying that the apostle teaching is better he's saying it's the whole counsel of god and it all comes together it's all equally or authoritative and he and look down what he says down in verse 15. It's in chapter, again, chapter 3, verse 15. It says, And account that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, talking about the apostle Paul, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, Unto their own destruction. So, what Peter is saying here is, uh, he's first he's kind of telling him how to view the second coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. But the interesting part here is in verse sixteen, in which Peter says that Paul's epistles sometimes include things that are hard to understand. Okay, would you agree with that? Sometimes Paul's epistles, it's hard to understand. And so, but look what he says again in verse sixteen. He says, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. What he's saying is that there are some that read the words of Paul's epistle and they're unlearned. In other words, they're ignorant or they're immature in their knowledge. But he also says, and there's some are unstable, which means they're immature in their Christian life. And he says, rest. And that word is like wrestle. So he's saying there are some, when they read Paul's words, it's confusing and they're immature either in their knowledge or they're immature in their um, in their maturity as a Christian they're unstable and they kind of wrestle with these things and they and it may become an issue it may become an offense but look how he describes it the next phrase after the word rest it says as they do also the other scriptures we want to encourage you so to So what he's saying is they're the same people sf. they they struggle com. with all the teachings they're, they're just, they're, uh, they're ignorant or they're unstable and they struggle with all the teachings. But he, look how he describes it. He says they struggle with Paul's teachings the same way they do the other scriptures. So you know what Peter's saying is that Paul's writings are scriptures. Paul's writings are authoritative. Paul is an apostle. And that's interesting because Paul is an apostle out of due time meaning that he wasn't one of the original, but he saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and thus qualifying himself to see Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. He saw Jesus Christ alive on the road to Damascus. He's an apostle. Peter is giving Paul the same um, amount of authority that all the apostles do And not only that, he's saying all those other scriptures that those unlearned, unstable people wrestle with, um, those other scriptures, they wrestle with Paul's stuff too, it's fine. But he's lumping it together saying it's all scripture. That other scripture would be the Old Testament. What Peter is saying is that Paul's writings are on par with the Old Testament. His authority as an apostle is real, is what Peter's saying. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 5. It'll be maybe the last one we turn to. 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, for the scripture saith... Sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Timothy five eighteen. Okay, we have page turning fatigue. It's taking us longer and longer each time. Are your fingers tired? You got carpal tunnel now? Sorry about that. For the scripture saith... Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So this is Paul. He's talking, again, we're we're, we're trying to show how the New Testament gives authority both to itself as equal with the Old Testament, okay? But also authority to the Old Testament. What's interesting about this verse is if you look up the the quotes, okay? uh, Deuteronomy 25.4 is where Paul got, for the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's an Old Testament book of the law, Deuteronomy 25, 4. The second phrase of 1 Timothy five eighteen it says, And the laborer is worthy of his reward. You know who said that one? Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, verse 10. And what Paul is saying, the scripture saith, what he's saying is by that, and I love this verse, I never had seen or noticed this until somebody else pointed it out. But he's saying, the scripture saith, In the Old Testament, the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. But the Scripture also saith in the New Testament, Jesus Christ's words, the laborer is worthy of his reward. You know what he's saying? The Old Testament and the New Testament, it's all scripture. It's all on equal ground, it's all authoritative, it all it, it all has the same level of authority from God to be the expression of himself. It's all scripture. And I start this lesson or this thought tonight, this message, this way, because we could simply turn to New Testament verses that talk about the importance of Scripture in our lives. And like where we started in 2 Timothy 3, we need those. We could talk about the effect it has in our life, and we'll do that in future weeks. But the establishing of scriptural authority deserves a more in-depth look because everything we do from here on out is determined by how strongly we have faith that we have God's Word right here in our hands. And if you look through the scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, we we have authoritatively, we have God's word. And there's a case to be made, not just in a word. We say, "Well, by faith we receive this," you know. But you look at these things, and it is evidence. This is the most important doctrine. This is the this is the foundation upon which all of our other beliefs are are set and built. The Bible is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe that God is, he's a speaking God, and it all came from God, and it is our sole authority, meaning we don't follow some denominational traditions. We don't feel the need to add anything to scripture either in order to please God. We believe we have everything in terms of matters of faith and practice right here in God's word, sola scriptura. It's all we need for salvation. It's all we need for sanctification. And listen, that view of God's word has typically been a Baptist distinctive. And I'm not saying every Baptist has that high of a view of Scripture, nor am I saying that every non-Baptist has a low view of God's Word. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply pointing out that, what we, that we believe uh, in having a lofty view of the authority of God's Word in a believer's life. This, this is all you need. And I know there will be times where, uh, where you feel that you've got to go someplace else to find some answers. And if you do that, then you have bought into the mindset or the worldview of, of the world that says, no, in addition to scriptura, not only scriptura, not sola scriptura. If we, if we believe sola scriptura, if we believe by scripture alone, then we have everything we need. Peter, Paul said it, matters of salvation and through faith and that, that the man of God may be perfect. All you need is found in God's word. So if you believe that, it makes you a Baptist. Amen. And I'm a Baptist, but I'm thankful that I can have that kind of confidence in God's Word. So let me give you a few questions, though. If God's Word is the ultimate authority, is there anything in your life that is in disagreement with God's revealed will? We say, yeah, God, it's God, God's Word, and it has all the authority I need. But is there anything in your life that's in disagreement with His revealed will for your life? Is there a personal habit or some sin? Or some, maybe some beliefs that you have, maybe that, if, that you're kind of struggling with. Or is there a spirit or a certain attitude? Is there a certain behavior in your life that, go, that is contrary to God's word? Second, if God's word is that important, how much influence do you allow it to have in your daily life? I mean, if this is God's communication with man, if this is his expression of himself to us, then why aren't we reading it? If this is God's expression to us, why are we not meditating on it? Why are we not memorizing it? Why are we why are we not tuning in when it's taught and preached? The third, if God is a God of communication and that he exists and he is not silent, then how much effort have you recently been putting in on a daily basis to communicate with God and allow him to communicate with you? Because he is a communicating God. And you know, it's obvious he wants to communicate because it's part of his nature. But heaven forbid that a holy God would want to be more passionate about communicating with me than I am about communicating with him. He wants to communicate with you. He wants a relationship. And yet I wonder how many in, in e he looks for just communication and we sometimes go weeks without it or days without it, or in a a trial that we would go any length of time at all without communicating with the only one that has the answers. Heaven forbid that the God of heaven should be more passionate about knowing me than I am about knowing him. So however the Lord has worked through this in your life about God's word, we have God's ultimate authority. We have his word. He's a communicating God. He is and he is not silent uh, what are, maybe, maybe God has prompted you then to take more seriously the role God's word is supposed to play in your daily life. Maybe you've relaxed. Maybe you've let it slip. Maybe you're in the habit of tuning out. Maybe you're not memorizing. Maybe you know that it has something that goes against what's in your life in some area or another. And you just don't really want to hear it but, it. but if this is God's authority... And and everything that he has in his word is all we need to be the kind of person we're supposed to be. Maybe it's time to submit to it. And you say, well, I just don't want to submit. Well, Jesus Christ submitted to God's word. He came to fulfill God's word. He said, no, my guide for my life is God's word. So why would his disciples be above that? Let's submit to God's word tonight. It's all we need. It, It is sola scriptura. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We will have a verse of invitation just want to give you an opportunity to respond. And and I think that every person ought to come to terms with, listen, if I'm not where I need to be, if God's word doesn't play the role it's supposed to in my life in one way or the other, I need to make that right. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.